The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Father, we pray that you would arise now, that you would scatter your enemies, that you would let sinners repent and find mercy. Pray that you would bring in your children from afar, those that are far from you, and that you would strengthen this church this morning also in the hearing of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So thus far in our series on the attributes of God this summer, I've primarily spoken on attributes having to do with God's transcendence. I've spoken how God is far and above and beyond all other things in creation. His excellencies far surpass anything else. He is high and lofty and exalted. He's a great king over all the earth. And we can't reach up to him by our own strength. Now it's important for us to understand the transcendence of God. We would be lacking in our spirituality if we only thought of God as that baby, Jesus, in a manger who came at Christmas. A God who sympathizes with our weaknesses. It's important for us to understand that God is incomprehensible. He's utterly unchanging. He's almighty and needs no helpers. That he's omnipresent and next to and aware of all things that occur. And that he is majestic in glory and he towers over all others in his greatness. And yet if God is only a God who is transcendent, he's only a God far off, then how can he be of any benefit to us in our lowly estate? How could we come to know God's heart? How could we ascend to his heights and be saved? Is our God like the God of the deists who just wound up the clock of the universe and then just let it run on its own? And it's up to us to do the right thing and reach up to him. The scriptures teach that God is not only a God far off and high and lofty and exalted, but he's also a God near at hand. And more than that, Scripture teaches that God is merciful and His ears are attentive to our cries and our tears. So let's start by looking at our sermon text for today. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now in this passage, the Lord reveals himself to Moses, the man of God, in the burning bush in the wilderness. Verse 5 says, the Lord descended and stood with Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
Now, by proclaiming the name, we understand that he proclaimed the nature of God. He proclaimed the essence of God's character, his disposition, what God is like. So if you want to know who God is in just a few words, you can look to this text. It's like if you came to a new group or you came to orientation, and like they always do, they say, so why don't you stand up and tell us something about yourself? Now, if God was in that group, this might be what he would say. Stand up and tell us something about yourself. If he wouldn't just limit himself to saying, I am, then he might say this. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. If you look at the original language for this text, you'll see... God's personal name, which he revealed to Moses in the burning bush, is first repeated twice in this proclamation. That name that means, I am who I am, he repeats twice. Now this name, above all others, speaks of how God is different from us, that he does not depend on anything besides himself to be who he is. God simply is. He's the only being who can say that. This personal God, the I Am, who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, is also the creator, the first cause, the sustainer of all things. He is God. But you'll notice the very first word that comes after that name. The very first word God uses to describe himself To give us a better understanding of who God is and what he is like, the first word he uses is merciful. That great God, the I Am, who simply is and there is no other like him, who needs nothing, he is merciful. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. Now, as I've said before, the fact that God is, the fact that the Lord is, that he exists, is in one sense for us a terrifying fact. All people know this, and so they suppress the truth about God in their unbelief. Romans 1 says, God's invisible attributes are made known by the things that have been made, so people are without excuse. Because although they know God, yet they reject that knowledge. They suppress it in their unbelief. Sinners suppress the truth about God to quiet their conscience because they know that if the one who is exists, then they are accountable to him for everything. And they know they've already dropped the ball. They've messed up. David says he was conceived in iniquity. Psalm 58.3 says the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born. And that's true for all of us here this morning. We all have sinned, and more than that, we're sinners by nature. It's part of who we are. But if this existence of God, the creator, the sustainer of all things, is only bad news to the sinner, then this first word God uses to describe himself is good news. It's something different. 
God is merciful. So what does that word mean? What does it mean to be merciful? Van Maastricht, the highly respected doctor of the church, said that God's grace grace is nothing but love that is not owed. And God's mercy is nothing but God's grace toward the miserable. So mercy is God's grace toward the miserable. And by miserable, he means those in a lowly state, those suffering, those in sorrow, those in misery. So to put it together, mercy is undeserved love extended to those in misery, in a miserable state. Now, do you see yourself as miserable? Not everybody does. Some people do. Some people don't. Growing up in the Lutheran church, I think almost every Sunday, part of the liturgy liturgy was saying together, I, a poor, miserable sinner. We confess that together. So this is nothing new here. Not everyone thinks of themselves that way. It seems in our time, very few think of themselves that way. We think we're the captain of our own fate. Maybe we have some flaws, but we're basically good. And so many think we're basically good, and in one way or another, we can earn our way to eternal life and to heaven. This sentiment was summed up by Luke Bryan recently in a song, the the country singer. Luke Bryan, he said, I believe most people are good. I believe most people are miserable without God would not (laughs) have the same ring to it. And if you search the records, I think you would find this is a problem as old as time. Man thinks he can attain righteousness by his own good deeds, his own working. Around the middle of last century, the renowned evangelical preacher on the other side of the pond, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he did an interview with a television host who was skeptical about his strange doctrines he was teaching, contradicting the ideas of the time. She asked him, what then is the nature of man's sin that you wish us to recognize? And he responded, it is this. It isn't so much that man does things that are wrong and thereby makes himself miserable. There are some people who represent sin as a sickness and say that man is sick. There are a lot of Christians who would say this. Well, I agree that man is sick. But to me, that's not the essence of the problem. The essence of the problem is that man is a rebel. And he is sick because he is a rebel. In other words, the business of Christianity ultimately is not simply to make us feel happier or even to make us live a better life. It is to reconcile us to God. Did you know you were born a rebel and you need reconciliation with God? The power of sin is in its deception. So many walk around there spiritually wounded, blind, deaf, mute. 
And they don't know there's anything wrong with them. They think they're better off than the people going to church on a Sunday. Confessing their sin. They think those people are weak. The problem with sin is it makes sinners themselves think that they're not sinning. They think they can create a law that's more righteous than God's. It's almost as if to say, you know, God, I would submit to your law if I thought it was as good as mine. I've made up a better one. Before we can apply the healing balm of the gospel, we have to understand that we're wounded, that we have a wound. Otherwise, people don't know what the prescription is for. So you might imagine a horse in war shot, and it's tipped over by the blow, and its legs keep running. You might imagine a snake who gets its head crushed, and it keeps writhing sometimes for an hour. Or a chicken that gets its head cut off and just keeps running. We have millions of people walking around like everything's fine, not knowing. They have a mortal wound to their chest, like from a cannonball. Scripture says of believers that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1, and you, speaking to believers, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Not down and out, not sick, not depressed, not a little under the weather, dead. Spiritually dead. Lost without God. Dead to the things of God, the things of glory. Now, if you don't believe me, if you think I'm interpreting that wrong, if you won't admit from experience, from your observation, knowing yourself, knowing your own thoughts, knowing your own heart, if you don't believe me, believe that text. And if you still don't believe me, Look back to history. Look at what the Reformers said. The Heidelberg Catechism, considered one of the finest fruits of the Reformation, it's broken into three parts, and the heading of the first part is man's misery. Man's misery. Question number three asks, from where do you know your misery? (laughs) The answer to question number five is, No, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Not exactly uplifting, but is it true? Yes, this is bad news. That's all bad news. Whether you think you're miserable in your sin or not, you are. It's just true. That's our state. It's how we all are born in Adam. And this isn't just my opinion. It's not a newfangled thing. This is a Christian belief passed down through the ages. 
The gospel isn't good news. You're not going to see it as good news if you don't know the bad news. And this bad news is as bad as it gets. Yes, it's bad. But it's that truth that makes the good news shine brighter. The bad news is God is perfect. He knows all things. He knows everything. He made you. And the good news is, God is perfect. He knows all things. He made you. He's going to bring everything to account. And he's merciful. That's the good news. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. The bad news is really bad. It's as bad as it gets. Your wound, your wounded heart couldn't get worse. Sin is a moral cancer. It's caused by our own willful rebellion, and it affects everything about us. But on the other hand, God pities us. He has mercy on us like a father has mercy on his children. God doesn't leave us to try to figure it out on our own. He doesn't see us sick and blind and deaf, groping in the dark, helpless, without God, and just say, figure it out. You'll get there. He has mercy on us. Now think about it this way. What father or mother here would see their child rollerblading and tip over, scrape up their knee and be bleeding, running down the leg, and they'd just say, Figure it out. <laughs> no. You don't do that. You go pick them up. You carry them into the house. You clean it off. You bandage them up. The moms give them a little kiss on that wound. That makes it all better. <laughs> I don't know why it works that way, but it does. And even if you're the hardest, toughest guy around, you got a daughter who tips over and falls and she cries, they'll break your heart. They cry real tears. <laughs> and you'll show mercy to them even if that happened because they disobeyed you. Even if you said, don't go out rollerblading, you're going to tip over and skin your knee. And they do it anyway. That doesn't mean you're going to say, figure it out, and just leave them laying there. Van Maastricht points out that this word for merciful in Exodus 34, 6 possibly derives from a word for womb and denotes the mother's care for the child in her womb. Or possibly it comes from a word meaning compassion. The New Testament word for this has something to do with entrails. That might sound kind of odd, but the idea is there that it affects you down to the deepest part of yourself. You feel it. Like in your gut. You feel it down in your spleen. It's such a deep mercy and compassion for those who are in misery, for those who are hurt. My sister had one of those old-fashioned country weddings where everyone pitches in to try to put the thing together, including the food and everything. And I didn't know what I was getting into when I got there. Uh, 
It was too much to do in too little time. But one of my honorary duties there was to skin the pig for the barbecue. <laughs> and uh, for some reason, I was using someone else's knife. Now, uh, myself, my brother-in-law, were working on this. We had the skin pulled down like halfway already. And those pigs are fat. There's lard all over in there. And my hands were all greased up. And then the crazy butcher who is walking around cussing and swearing every other word, he says, no, you've got you've to skin that up higher. You've got to get up higher on the hocks there. So I said, okay. And they're telling us, hurry up, hurry up, rehearsal's coming. We've got to get there for the rehearsal. <laughs> so I go to skin the hocks up higher. I go up with my knife like this, and I go to slide it under the skin. And the blade of the knife just sticks under the skin. And my hand, greased up with all that lard, just keeps going. <laughs> so I threw the knife on the ground. I just looked at my hand. And my brother-in-law says, go see my mother. <laughs> His mom showed mercy on me. She helped me get it cleaned up, washed it off, gave me a little bandage. And my girlfriend at the time, now wife, she had the pleasure of driving me to the emergency room to get stitches. And the doctor got a good laugh at my accent. <laughs> this was further down south. But she patched me up. They all showed me mercy, which was good because it was bleeding pretty bad. <laughs> now, they could have just left me to figure it out on my own. They say, you, you cut your hand, you figure it out. But they didn't do that. They had mercy. In Montana, when I worked out there, I was bringing up the rear on a trail ride in the meadow along the Boulder River. And suddenly a deer jumped out, out of nowhere, down in the meadow. And I was taking up the rear of this ride, and I was supposed to keep an eye on this older lady in front of me who was on a, a little younger, more inexperienced horse, and she was kind of just barely hanging on. <laughs> she already had a brace on her wrist. <laughs> so I was supposed to keep an eye on her. Uh, but this inexperienced horse saw the deer and just took off. Just made a few bounds, really. A few bounds. But this elderly lady just melted right off of him, fell off. And I'm looking, and there's boulders everywhere. There's boulders everywhere, and I'm like, oh boy, this is bad. <laughs> so I jumped off the horse, I went to go see her, and fortunately she landed in this patch of grass, the only patch of grass around that there were no rocks in. So she was fine, but I gave her a hand, I picked her up, and she was very grateful. Obviously, she was fine. But for the rest of the week, she called me her knight in shining buckskin. <laughs> so she appreciated that mercy that I showed to her. Now, all of us here, we have suffered. We still do suffer in our sin. And it's not only that, but we suffer with other hardships in life. Aches and pains, death, grief, sickness. But God doesn't just leave us to suffer. He's not a God far off and not near at hand. He doesn't say to his children, you made your bed, now lay in it. 
He's not the kind of God who tells us when we have no clothes or food, be warmed and filled, and then not do anything about it. In Isaiah 49, 15, the Lord says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Psalm 27, 10 says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. So even the best of parents might fail in their compassion at times. They lose their temper, their patience runs short, they flare their nostrils in anger. Even the best of Christians fail in their mercy at times, but God never fails in his mercy. A woman, a mother may forget her nursing child, but the Lord never forgets those who are his. God doesn't forget us. Your mother and your father may have forsaken you, but God will never forsake you. He will never leave you. The Lord is slow to anger, abundant in mercy, forgiving transgression and iniquity and sin. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, the psalm says, and he saves the crushed in spirit. So maybe you're sitting there today thinking, God is merciful? God hears, God knows, he's near to the brokenhearted, he saves the crushed in spirit. Where is God in my life? My mom died in a car accident when I was 13. My brother, my sister died young. Maybe everyone you know is gone. You're struggling with depression. You're sick. You can't get better no matter how many doctors you go and see. Maybe somebody hurt you for no reason, on purpose or by accident. Maybe you were born with a disease or a disability. Maybe you see your paycheck evaporating because of inflation. Maybe you see your profits becoming thinner and thinner by onerous regulations. You're feeling a crunch. It seems like nobody cares. Nobody's there. Nobody hears. It doesn't seem like God hears. It doesn't seem like God is merciful. Well, first of all, Scripture says we do not have because we do not ask. Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So if you want mercy from God, ask for it. Pray. Whoever turns to God, he will surely not cast out. He's a good and loving and merciful father. He delights to hear his children's prayers and give good things to those who seek him. Now second, we can't understand the mind of God. God doesn't always show mercy in the way that we think or in the way that we think would be good. If you remember Joseph in the Old Testament, he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And after that, it just got worse. But what does Joseph say in the end? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, that many would be saved. Job suffered for untold reasons. Paul suffered. Jesus suffered. He was in a miserable state. Does this mean God is not merciful or he does not attend to our cries? 
Do you doubt the mercy of God when your eyes can't see and your mind can't comprehend what God is doing or why he's doing it? How he can still be merciful? When you go through these hard and lean times. But do you see with the eye of faith in those circumstances? God's word is our sure guide and a lamp shining in the fog of that doubt. So Psalm 56, 8 says, You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Your tears are in a bottle. God has them recorded in a book, Scripture says. Lamentations 3, 31-33, For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion, according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. So God is working in your pain and in your grief. He is not absent. He's there. He knows. He's with you for good. And his mercies will not depart from you. Sometimes God's mercy is severe. Sometimes he disciplines his children. Psalm 119.71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted, so that I might learn your statutes. For some of us, that might be part of our testimony and how we came to faith in Christ. We went through a hard trial, affliction. Often God uses pain to draw us to himself. As someone said, pain is God's megaphone. When he wants to get our attention, he uses pain often. He uses it to get our attention, to turn us from sin. Sometimes he uses, us, uses it to prune us. When we've been fruitful, he prunes us back that we can be even more fruitful and do even more good in our lives. And sometimes it's so that we can minister to others and show the Christ to those who suffer from the same pain or grief or misery. In these times, Jesus' words to Peter are instructive. He said to Peter, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And finally, look to Christ. When the blind man on the road to Jericho cried out to Jesus and he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus didn't say he was too busy. He didn't say, come back another time. He commanded him to be brought to him immediately. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. Now notice Jesus tells the man that his faith made him well. But the man goes off glorifying God. This man had a justifying faith. It's not the person who believes that gives faith the power. It's the person you believe in that gives faith power. And that's why he glorifies God and not himself. It wasn't his own great faith. He didn't give credit to himself. But also notice that when Jesus tells the man to receive his sight, he says, your faith has made you well. Well, that's completed action. Your faith has made you well. He's already been made well. 
Before his eyes were healed, it seems, Jesus says to him, your faith has already made you well. A better translation might be, you've already been saved. It's more literally what that word means. So when that man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, faith was already active there. He wouldn't let anyone quiet him down. They tried to quiet him down, say, stop yelling. He wouldn't stop. In that cry for mercy, there was already faith there. And as Jesus said, that faith had already made him well. And it seems that it's only because he already had faith that Jesus then healed his sight. It was an outward sign that demonstrated Jesus' ability to save souls. It was a validation of Christ's divinity. You can't see justification in the heart of a person. You can't see righteousness applied to their account, but you can see a man healed from blindness. It demonstrated Christ's divinity, that he was able to heal in the soul. God isn't always going to heal. He's not always going to clear away everything from our lives, every hardship. He's not always going to heal your mom, your dad, your friend. And if he always did, it wouldn't be a miracle anymore. It would just be a commonplace. But if you believe in the Son of God, you are already healed. And they too, those in your life, they can be well even in their sickness if they believe the goodness and mercy of God. The deepest mercy God could possibly show, he showed in the cross of Christ. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53 says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that blind man, even though his eyesight was healed, he would one day close his eyes again. And if even for a moment he would be blind again, he would lose his sight. The deaf and the mute who had their ears unstopped and their tongues loosed, one day their tongue would lie silent in the grave. The healed paralytic, his body would one day go limp again. So the effect of these miracles in this life are temporary. But the healing power of Christ, received by faith, heals forever. It saves your soul. The wound all of us most need healed is our wounded, rebellious, wayward heart. Christ heals that. The blindness we most need healed is spiritual blindness. The deafness we most need healed is spiritual deafness. Spiritual paralysis. Believe in Christ and be saved. Whoever comes to him, he will not cast out. No matter how miserable you are, no matter how lost you are in sin, how rebellious, how rebellious you've been, he's merciful. 
whether it's murder, blasphemy, theft, lies, drug addiction, adultery, abortion, believe in Christ and be saved. No one is too far away. God's arm is not shortened that he cannot save. Christ took the full penalty of your sin, no matter what it is. He took it. He nailed your sin to the cross in his boundless mercy. He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever lives and believes in him shall never die. So believe that. Believe that testimony of God's word and rest in this all-merciful Savior who satisfied for all your sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He carried away our diseases. God is good and gracious and merciful, and he will by no means cast you out if you cast yourself on him and his mercy by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would believe in and rest in this merciful Savior. And even if we have pain and grief now, even if the comfort of your mercy seems far away, I pray that by your Spirit you would draw near to us, that you would give us peace and comfort and joy in the midst of our trials, that we would know your goodness and your mercy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.